Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with independent researcher and author Carlos Alvarenga. Before writing and coaching full-time, he worked as a management consultant and adjunct professor at the Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. Prior to his current role, he was the executive director of World 50 Labs, the member innovation team at World 50, Inc. Before World 50, he was a principal in Ernst & Young's advisory practice and earlier a managing director managing director at Accenture. These days, he lives in Bethesda, Maryland with his wife, a physician researcher at the National Institutes of Health, and is the father of two sons. He's got a great story. Enjoy. Carlos, great to meet you. Thank you for taking a minute out for the show. And I want to begin our conversation with living through the pandemic. How did you get through the last three and a half years and how did it change you? Well, it, it changed me because I had just decided to start writing full time when COVID started. And so I was at home and I I had made that choice before COVID hit, but then suddenly everybody seemed to be at home. So for me, the last four years have been uh, focused on writing three books, the first of which came out a couple of months ago. And so it was a, a time in a way of isolation, because when you're a writer and researcher, you're working alone most of the time. But it was interesting to watch my friends who had been, I've been a consultant my whole life, to who had, who had lived on the road. Suddenly that entire business was changed completely. And of course, my wife is actually a researcher and age. So she was in the middle of all this. So it was, you know, COVID 24 hours a day at our house because she's in, she's a professional in that world. So we were watching the science evolve on a day to day basis at the same time as I was looking at my, my former colleagues and friends going through all the things they went through on the business side of things. So let's get to the essence and the heart and soul of what you do. If I put you in front of a grade school, a group of grade school kids, let's say third graders, and it's career day, and one of them looks up and says, hey, what do you do for a living? How would you answer that child? I'd say I translate uh, research into language that anyone hopefully can understand, right? Research, whether it's in science or whether it's in business or computer you know, the technology, it's written by specialists for specialists for, for lots of reasons, which means that it's often not accessible to a general audience. So what I've done most of my career, whether it was consulting when I was a writer, was take um, specialized knowledge and specialized language and translate it into a way that uh, hopefully a general audience can understand and benefit from. Because I, be I believe in the work that specialists do and experts do. Oftentimes, like I said, it's hard to, to follow it. So I see myself as a, as a bridge between specialized cr creators of specialized knowledge and general readers. And that's what I did with this book. You're an ombudsman. You're the one that leads us to the knowledge. You know, I remember how satisfying it was to read A Brief History of Time by Hawking, how mm -hmm. he took all of those real heady concepts and he made it totally digestible. And it's so necessary because all of this work in the sciences is the backbone of what we hold on to as truths. And it helps us get to a place where we can, you know, remedy disease and and understand why we're here so if we didn't understand that it would be a bad world yeah and there's so much great work that's done right and if you get a chance to read it i have a website called thematics and i have think over a hundred translations of research that i've written over the years and uh, it is it is it is tough to access because if you think about a typical peer-reviewed research paper in business it's almost could be 60 70 80 pages very technical full of graphs statistics most people are not going to bother to go through this. So I hope that in the work that I do, somebody can say, okay, what was the key message of that research? And how can I put that to work for me? So that's, like I said, I think of myself as really this bridge between uh, 
the complex specialized world and the world of a person who's trying to remain current and, and up to date with uh, you know good ideas. So what did you want to be in the third grade? What was your dream to grow up and become? I wanted to be a writer, so I lucked out. Yeah, um, you did. <laughs> I, always, I used to joke when I was in business, I don't know what my next job is. I know what my last job is. Yeah. Uh, that is, I started as a journalist, and then I left to go into consulting, but I always thought, well, sooner or later, I'll get a chance to come back. And I wrote, opened up all the time as a consultant. I taught as well as a professor at Maryland. So, uh, but yeah, I, I love to write, and I love communicating. I, I see it as a form of teaching. Yeah. So it's it's teaching with in in book form. That's all. You know, I always hear from people that love getting tattoos that when when you get one, you want more. And I always think in journalism, once you get that bug, you never get it out of you, one way or yeah, another. Because the feedback is so instantaneous, right? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's wonderful. So let's let's find out how we got here. Take me back to where you were born and raised, and how this love of writing and helping people understand heady concepts. How did all of this become who you are today? Well, it runs in the family. My my dad is a writer. My brother is a writer. And so I think it just sort of the Alvarenga gene is to be a good storyteller. Uh, I'm originally from El Salvador, and I came uh, to the U.S. when I was about 10. I was a war refugee and grew up in the South Bronx in New York City. So I would say New York 1.0. So yeah. the old version of New York right, in, the, in the hip hop so I was born in that same era, right? You know, grew up in the 80s. And so, uh, yeah, I was uh, adopted, you know, Bronx, New Yorker, uh, went to school on scholarship, went back to El Salvador after school, was a journalist for three years, and then got hired to ghost write a book. Uh, came That brought me back to the U.S. Uh, it was a consulting firm that hired me. And at the end of that project, they said, look, how'd you like a job? And so I thought, okay, that's fine. I could do it for a little while. Ended up becoming a 20-year career. And then, um, and then, like I said, that that ended a few years ago, and I decided to go back and to write for a while. So, who's been kind of an inspiration or a hero for you in your life? Well, my editor is a good one to start with, right? Um, yeah. He is a, was a presser of mine when I was in college, Jim Arietti, and he's a, a world famous classicist. His dad was Sylvain Arietti, a, a famous uh, the guy who sort of invented the idea of schizophrenia. So, he comes from a very distinguished family, and and Jim. Uh, I went to school in the South, and so I it was kind of culture shock for me. And Jim is from New York City, and so he, um, I didn't like it very much at first, kind of the classic story, right? <laughs> I thought yeah. it was uh, a kind of overbearing um, and a little pedantic. But the more I got to know him, the more I appreciated what a remarkable mind he was and his patience, right? Just remarkable patience. I was very lucky to go to a school where I could go to Jim and spend an hour talking about something in class, a word, for example. And so he instilled in me this the, this love of language and uh, and of truth and of thinking well and communicating well. And so Jim, Jim edits everything I've written. So he edited all three books. He read it every single line. He has, he wrote the afterword in this, in a new book on persuasion. So um, I, I try to, to live up to his standards when it comes to, to writing with the, uh, with clarity, truth, and grace, as I think you would say. Wonderful. So as a journalist and someone that likes to get into the story, who would be a dream interview for you? Who would you love to talk to? Uh, you know, there are a lot of people. I'd say maybe Marvin Gaye, right? Oh, yeah. I, I wrote about Marvin Gaye in the book. I, I have five, what I would call sort of masterpiece examples of persuasion, right? The first one is the, the Dialogues of Plato. The second is the the first 10 years of Muhammad, the birth of Islam, 
um, which convincing an entire people to create the third great Abrahamic faith. The third is the, the use of posters in communist China. When the communists took over China, you have a billion people, most are illiterate. How do you persuade them if nobody yeah. can read, right? And you don't have social media. And they did it with posters in large part. So there have uh, been a study of these posters for a long time. And uh, the fourth one, by the way, the fifth one is, is a video on YouTube, which is Kevin Costner's eulogy for Whitney Houston, which is a wonderful, wonderful speech. Uh, but the fourth one is What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, the album. Yeah. And I considered it to be, and I, I wrote, it's interesting, I wrote about it in every single track in, in, the, in, the, in the album. And then after I wrote, I went and looked, saw that, they, that Rolling Stone had re-ranked it above Abbey Road as the greatest album, you know, of all time. And it yeah. didn't surprise because it is a, it is a remarkable, remarkable um, uh, creative work. And I think if I could talk to anybody about anything, it would be Marvin Gaye about that album. And what, was, interesting. You know, what was going on with what's going on? You know, and by the way, yeah. what's going on is not a question. It's a statement. Yeah, right. right. And, uh, yeah. And you go, you know, it's just an incredible piece of work, right? I, I love that album. I've heard it a million times. I'll, I never get tired of hearing it. Yeah, it is. It's a timeless album. It's interesting you mentioned Kevin Costner because, you know, I'm a big baseball fan. I've been to the Field of Dreams in Dyersville, Iowa. I'm thinking about every time he does something, he commits to it. He does such a good job, you know, and that introduction that he did during that game up there. And I, what, I mean, anytime he does something. So I'll have to look that eulogy up. I'm, I'm interested. And it's very it. because he, you know, he when he, of course he had co-star with Houston, right? In yeah. Buddy. And when she died, he didn't comment. He didn't want to be part of the story. He, he yeah. didn't think it was appropriate. But her family asked him to come and speak at the funeral, and so he agreed. He wrote the speech on the way. I think on the plane, he said, "Right, going to the to the funeral." And the beginning is what's remarkable. I mean, a lot of remarkable things, but the beginning he, here is a rich white male actor in a historically black Baptist church. And he begins by saying, you may wonder why I'm here. Like, what do I have in common with all of you? He said, but, and if you think it's nothing, you'd be wrong. I grew up in the Baptist church. My dad was a deacon. My mother ran the choir. Wow. I went to church almost on a daily basis. And in this, that two minute vignette, you could see the audience change and they envelop him. And now he's talked to them from the inside. Yeah. Everything changes in that first minute or so, right? And of course, it's a great seat, but also delivered by Kevin Costa. Yeah. So the you could the rhetorical power he brings as, as a great actor is in full display. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's just 17 minutes, but I think it's I think it's one of the great pieces of modern American oratory. So before we got on here, we were kind of talking about where we're coming out of and you're in Bethesda and I'm in Kansas City and I have a backbone in jazz and you have a love for it as well. So we were kind of talking a little bit about Bill Evans, which is, I, I love Bill too. What was the first live jazz show or what was the moment that you fell in love with jazz? It was going through YouTube one night and I came across, I did, I'm not a jazz person, yeah. right? Um, and this is this is maybe 12 years ago and i came across a video of my foolish heart the old black and white video yeah and it was evans playing and i was stunned i couldn't believe it i this was to me this wasn't music this was something else it was it was poetry it was grace it was a death of human emotion i'd never heard anybody deliver yeah and 
I became obsessed. I watched video after video, and I decided that I needed to understand how this worked. So I bought a keyboard. I started taking classes, and I said, one day I'll play an Evans set. I don't care how long it takes me. It's now been 12 years, I guess now, and I can play an Evans set, right? Wow. Good for you, man. I learned how to play Bill Evans. Yeah. Yeah. That's how much I love it. That's that's what's a wonderful story. Yeah. I One of my favorite pieces, and, and this really kind of helped me in the pandemic, was Peace Peace. There was yeah. just such a solitude and depth that went into that. Um, but, you know, he was a part of so many seminal recordings. I mean, the, the most popular recording in the history of jazz, Kind of Blue, he was the he was the texture of that album. So, yeah, he's uh, he, he's phenomenal for sure. And it's a lesson to me, Evans, because I play Bach and, and I would say Bach and Bill are the two things I play and, and they're very different. But the thing about Evans is that and people, if somebody asks me, what did you learn from, I don't know how it's been, 7,000, 8,000 hours now of playing, they'll say play two hours a day typically. And so... It's, it's, Bill is played with your mind. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, it is control of space and the ability to calm yourself. My problem with Bill was that I would play too quickly at first. Yeah. So you have to sort of slow that tempo down, but stay in control. And that ability to, to construct space in your mind and then, and then transform it. And the other thing is that, you know, I have this picture of it next to my piano, and it's, which is a cover from a, I think it was an album called The Way to Play. And there's a certain sound that comes out. It's very precise, but also very soft. And yeah. it took years of learning to control small movements and say, okay, how can I approximate not just the notes, but the way in which they're played, right? So yeah, I will, you know, the piece piece, which is also used in some other time, it's the same sort of harmonic structure, right? It's just and I keep finding new, there's so many recordings, I still find new tunes. Yeah. I fall in love with, so yeah. His catalog is expansive, very expansive. So um, so what is it for you every day you wake up and you have the work that you do? What what motivates you? What is the ultimate motivator for you to not only do your work, to, but to be who you are? I, I think it's the, at least on the professional side, besides being a, a good husband and a good father, right? Which always takes the priority for me on a, from a professional side is I'm a very curious person. So I, I, I learned the piano because I want to understand how, how music works. Right. And so it's to me, it's okay. Why, why, what is this thing? Why does it work? The book that I just wrote on persuasion came up. Well, what is persuasion? It's such a, it's such a word we use every day. But most people never study it. They never, we don't take classes on it in school. And so, and yet it can define success or failure, right, in our daily life. So it became this journey to understand what is this word, right? Yeah. And where does it come from? And what does it really mean? And so I'm driven by the, the, the need to understand the mechanics of things, right? My mom told me one time when I was a kid, if I got a toy, I would take it apart immediately so i wanted to know okay what's inside the box so i yeah. i think i'm still that same way like what's inside this box right why is it the way it is and i have a i have a habit that every year i pick a topic on new year's eve to read for the next year oh cool and i sort of focus my reading on that one topic so one year it was math one year it was the conquest of the west the next year it was you know it was light for example so that habit is another habit of just saying okay for the next 12 months we're only going to read about 
the civil war, for example. Yeah. Uh, and that's, well, and so because for me, it's okay, well, I, I sort of know the story, but what is the story, right? And then you go, kind of go deep into it. So I, I love that process of, okay, here's a book about light in the in the eyes of animals, right? Okay, that's interesting. And then you look at the bibliography, okay, then like, here comes the next book. And then after, after a year, like, wow, I, I know a lot about light now. Right? Yeah, so, that's wonderful, man. Yeah, because there's so much out there that's fascinating. Yeah, and that's why I had to narrow it down. Otherwise, I would just be random things all yeah. the time. I thought, well, let's let's try to put it into a lane each yeah. year. So I at least have some theme, right, for uh, for the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember when I got my first computer, it was a Packard Bell. It was in the early 90s, and they used to have those little encyclopedia discs. And yeah. I remember putting that in there and just going through everything and thinking, wow, this is amazing. It was kind of the precursor to being on the web. Like, I could get anything I want. Yeah. all graphically displayed pictures video whatever it was just it, it's wondrous to be able to crack that open so I, i'm curious in your professional life what's been one of your best success stories i i say the most important thing for me is that i it, are the people who who worked for me at some point who went on to have great careers right and i and i always say the the best way to gauge a leader is the people who worked for you yeah, who went on to become successful, who would credit some of their success to you. And I, I've been fortunate to to manage really amazing people all over the world because I worked all over the world when I was a consultant. Right? I lived in six different countries. And I get if I get a note saying, you know what, the time that I spent working on with you during that project or over, the, over those two or three years, I never forgot what you told me. I, I, I used to always think my teams read a lot. So they would say, I remember the reading list and you know the 10 rules and whatever it was. So to me, uh, the fact that there are people out there who have done really well, who would give me a little bit of credit for, for, the, for their success because they spent some time with me, that's the best to me. There's nothing more important than making... And it's a lesson I didn't understand at first, right? In other words, you when I think when I was younger, you'd say, oh... I want to manage A players, and I don't, you know, and the B's he's going to figure it out themselves. And then I, I realized that that's that's wrong. A anybody can manage A players. Yeah. The trick is can you create them. Right, yeah. that's the challenge. So my challenge went from finding A players, quote unquote, and managing them to making people who others thought right uh, were B and C and say, okay, no, this person has a lot more to give and. Uh, there have been people who I work with who I was told don't hire them or they're not good for your team. And I realized, you know what? No, that's not them. It's the people they've worked for in a yeah. different setting. This person's going to thrive and they did. And so I'm, I'm most proud of having been, I hope a good leader and, and kind of mentor to people who I work with in consulting. You know? who, what's been some of the best advice you've ever gotten? Boy, there's been a whole lot, right? And in fact, I, it's a funny thing. When I left consulting, I wrote, I used to have my, I used to tell my teams these 10 rules of consulting. And they said, you should write this down. So I did. And I wrote it, I think at the airport on my last flight home and I put it on LinkedIn. It took me five minutes to write. It's been read by, I don't know, 200,000 people, right? And so it's a funny thing. It went quote unquote viral. And it's just 10 simple rules that I used to tell my teams. And, and one of them, the first one was, the most important one was shy consultants have skinny children. So what does that mean? And yeah. I, this is the first piece of advice I ever got, right? And that was, look, in this job, you're going to have to learn to talk about yourself. 
because that's because you're always an optional expense, right? And so how to do that without seeming arrogant, overbearing is going to be tough, but learn how to do that. And I was very shy. I'm a very shy person by nature. So when I first got to consulting, my boss said, you better, you need to get over your shyness or find a new job. And I said, well, I don't want a new job because in that case, what you're going to do, you're going to come every Friday. I want you to find someone in this building who has an office and I want you to knock on their door and introduce yourself. Tell them who you are and what do you do? And it will take you about six months to cover every office. (laughs) (laughs) When you're done, you'll either have quit or you'll be over your shyness. And if anybody asks you why you're doing this, tell them that I sent you. So I did it for six months. Every Friday afternoon, I would find an office. I would knock on the door and I would say, excuse me, Bob told me I should come and tell you who I am and what I do. And they say, come on in. It would take 15 minutes. But I tell you what, after six months, I was very comfortable saying, this is what I am. This is what I do. This is what I'm working on. And it was a remarkable piece of, of coaching, right? And of advice to say, listen, yeah. this is fundamental to you being successful and you need to fix this, but I'm going to tell you how, right? Yeah. This is another thing too that I would say, look, anybody can tell me we're on the wrong side of the river. You know, that's great. And I, in my career, I had that a lot. This company has this problem. This isn't working. And I would go, that's great. Thank you for telling me we're on the wrong side of the river. <laughs> now, how do we get to the other side? Yeah. Well, I got to go. Okay. Thank you. That's, it's great, but are you gonna are you gonna work with me? Are you gonna build a bridge? Are we gonna tie logs together? And by the way, when the storm comes and washes two weeks worth of work away, are you gonna come back with me and start all over again? If not, then I don't really need you to tell me we're on the wrong side of the river. So I think that was a great example of Bob saying, "Listen, you're on the wrong side of the shyness river, and here's the bridge that will get to the other side if you put in the work." And so I, I got that lesson. It was a wonderful lesson. That's brilliant. So. Everyone out there has a perception of you, family, friends, clients, colleagues, but you are in control. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I think I'm a shy person and I think I work hard to overcome the shyness and uh, which is one reason why I gravitate to writing because writing allows me to communicate um, in a way that leaves up to the reader to take as little or as much um, as they want to, whenever they want to. So um, it is a it's a great outlet for people who are shy. That said, I I've taught and consulted, which gave me the ability to turn off the shyness for a moment, right? Because I have a job to do. But the if you get to know me, the longer we get to know me, the quieter we're going to be. In fact, my best friend is a is a guy that we were in grad school together, and we became great friends because we could spend two hours in the living room without saying a word to each other. Yeah, and, uh, there was this instantaneous comfort of I didn't feel the need to talk. I didn't feel the need to kind of put up airtime. Right? Yeah, um, it was. He's doing his thing. I'm doing my thing. We go in and drive someplace without. Uh, we don't need to talk to each other. Right? You're good. I'm good. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I'd say I'm a quiet person who's very curious and wants to share the things that I discover that I think are amazing with anybody, and I love to tell a good story. So. Speaking of a good story and sharing, if anyone out there wants to get your books, they want to learn more about you, anything about your world, where's the best place to go? CarlosAlvarenga.com. It has all the projects that I've worked on and I'm working on. And of course, if you look me up, I'll look up the rules of persuasion, which is my new book on persuasion. That's available on Amazon. It's on audiobooks, Kindle, 
audible. So, you know, every format. I did the narration for the book, which was a nerve wracking experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you've ever done that, you know what I'm talking about, locked in a soundproof room for a week. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I hope people will check out the book. It's been really well received, you know, thankfully. So I look forward to um, always getting feedback from readers and what they liked and they're thinking about uh, maybe a, a follow up. Right on. Carlos, I would have never known you were shy at all. This has been wonderful. It's been very engaging. Thank you for your story. Thank you for your time. Best of luck with everything. Have a great holiday. Same to you, Joe. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. Our esteemed theme music was composed and produced by the great E.E. E. Pointer of Kansas City's River Cow Orchestra. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. 